0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: This morning, we are continuing in our summer sermon series titled The Five Scrolls, traditionally known as the Megaloth. As we've shared throughout this series, it was tradition for the five scrolls to be read during Israel's annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem to attend four feasts and one fast. At these feasts and fasts, the Jewish people gathered from all of the villages throughout Palestine to remember who they are, to find motivation for continuing their lives of faith and to orient their lives once again to ground, to tether their lives in God who is love which is a lot like the function of church and our hope for this series. Uh, This summer, we hope to have our lives in this community shaped by these five scrolls and their associated feasts and fasts to more deeply remember who it is that we are, to find motivation for continuing our lives of Christian faith, and to orient our community in God, who is love. So far, we've covered Song of Songs, which is about intimacy in the context of sexuality. This book was read during the Feast of Passover. And then we covered the book of Ruth, which is about identity as a person who belongs at God's table. And this book was read during the Feast of Pentecost. And last week, we looked at the book of Esther, which is about the celebration of marginalized people who receive welcome and safety in society. This book was read during the Feast of Purim. This morning, we're going to turn our attention from these feasts, and we're going to focus ourselves on Israel's primary fast. It was known as the Ninth of Ab Fast, and this fast was intimately connected with the book of Lamentations. The Ninth of Ab Fast took place in the fifth month of the Hebrew calendar, which fell around the months of July, sometimes into August this fast was established to remember the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And depending on which book in the Bible you're reading, it happened at different times. According to Second Kings chapter 25, the destruction of the temple occurred on the seventh day of the fifth month. Uh, but if you were to read Jeremiah chapter 52, you would see that it occurred on the 10th day of the fifth month. And so, somehow, in between the seventh and the tenth is the ninth on which Israel decided to remember and to mourn the temple's destruction at the hand of the Babylonian Empire. Thus, the ninth of Ab was a national feast for Israel, falling on the ninth day of the fifth month in order to grieve the temple's destruction. Now, before getting to the book of Lamentations, it's helpful for us to know a couple things about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. First, the temple represented the very presence of God in Israel. So this wasn't like Israel just had a building destroyed. No, this building had incredible meaning for Israel. It meant the presence of God among them inside this temple. You may remember that after fleeing Egypt, Moses met with God up on the mountaintop and received the commandments. He then came down. Israel entered into a covenant with the Lord. They received instruction on how to build the tabernacle and the ark and how to set up the tent of meeting. Inside that tent of meeting was the ark. Above the ark were these two cherubim. They faced outward. Their wings came over the top of the ark. And it was said that God's presence dwelt right in between those angels' wings above the ark. When the tent of meeting was set up, at its center was God. God. And around that tent of meeting gathered all the twelve tribes of Israel as they traveled throughout the wilderness on their way to the land of promise. Fast forward, Solomon is king. Solomon builds God a temple. That temple is filled with God's spirit. It takes over the job of the tent of meeting and the ark. Thus, at the center of Israel, in Jerusalem, on the hilltop, dwelt the very presence of God in the temple. It's this very temple that was sacked and ultimately destroyed by the Babylonians, which both has literal and metaphorical meanings. This means that God's presence at the center of Israel's life had departed. It was gone. Israel was without Yahweh. Which brings me to a second point, and this is the reason for why the temple was destroyed the temple was said to be destroyed because Israel had failed at being faithful to God. How? Well, a primary reason comes from their Exodus story. If you remember, they were slaves in Egypt crying out to God for liberation. And in that story, we learned that God is the one who liberates every people who are oppressed. So Israel is set free. This is very important. Israel's enslaved people, cried out for help. They were liberated, set apart, and they were called to bear witness in the world to this liberating God. They were to be that light of God's liberation in the world. But over time, this marginalized people became an empire. And rather than participating in God's liberating work, most ironically, Israel became a people that used its liberation to enslave and to dominate other people. In other words, Israel had become like Egypt, an empire filled with people who cried out for liberation. It's into this context that the temple is destroyed, and we read words like these from the book of Lamentations, as Israel made pilgrimage to Jerusalem to remember the ninth of Ab-Fast. So they've now returned to the land from Babylon, and they are remembering the destruction of the temple and why the destruction happened. And the book of Lamentations was used as a liturgy to remember the temple's dismantling and their part in its desolation. So from Lamentations chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, The roads to Zion mourn, no one comes to the festivals, all her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her young girls grieve, and her lot is bitter. Her foes have become the masters, her enemies prosper, because the Lord has made her suffer for the multitude of her transgressions. Heavy, hard, I think we could maybe use a word like honest, maybe even human, and I think so incredibly beautiful. Like How beautiful to have an annual fast that's intentional to remember and to declare, hey, we messed up. Like How great to have an annual fast that's intentional to remember and to declare, we lost the plot. How incredible to have an annual fast that's intentional to remember and to declare, we forgot who it is that we truly are. We must return to that which we've been created to be, which is participants in God's liberating work in this world. And here's the thing, not just on a personal basis, which is usually like the season of Lent in, in church, right? But, but not, not for the individual, but, but for the entire church. Wouldn't that be an incredible annual thing to do as a Christian people? Incredible. An annual fast that's intentional to assess how we're doing, an annual fast that's intentional to consider if we remain aligned with the heart of God. I mean, if the Bible and church history teaches us anything, it's that humans have a propensity to wield privilege for self-gain, all too often in the name of some divine being. And although the church universal may be too much, too broad, too vast for us to comprehend, perhaps we Americans would benefit by annually considering the state of Christian life in the United States. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to consider the state of Christian life in the United States. But to assess how we're doing, we must understand the ancient goodness of the gospel. So I want to briefly begin with the ancient goodness of the gospel, then we'll compare that goodness to how we're doing as Christians in America today. In the gospel of Mark, Jesus is intentionally set up as a subversive Caesar. Like Rome's Caesar, Mark intentionally casts Jesus as the son of God. Rome believed that about Caesar. Who is a savior? Rome believed that about Caesar. Who brings about peace on earth? Rome believed that about Caesar. Through a cross? Rome believed that about Caesar. However, in one of the world's greatest reversals, Jesus doesn't use his power and privilege to crucify the other, in order to maintain power. Instead, through self-giving, Jesus himself is hung on a cross to declare, let the mythology of redemptive violence end with me. Let that whole way of seeing it just end. Let it, let it be done. Put asunder with me. And then in the gospel of Luke chapter four, Jesus walks into a synagogue, unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and reads these words, freedom from bondage, healing for the sick, release for the oppressed and the proclamation of God's favor on everyone and everything. He then says today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing and the people we are told were amazed at his gracious at his gracious words. And so about these points from Mark and Luke I'd like to ask some very ninth of ab fast questions about American Christianity. Question Is American Christianity marked by a gospel of self-giving that insists the powerful and privileged must use their power and privilege to help put an end to the mythology of redemptive violence? Is that American Christianity today? Or like Rome, is American Christianity enamored with the myth of redemptive violence? Look like us, believe like us, live like us, or else or else is a very gospel of Rome gospel. And to be clear, to be clear, what I'm talking about here when we walk through these facets of of Luke chapter 4 gospel points, uh, this isn't isn't like a spiritualized gospel that Jesus is trying to proclaim. Jesus isn't trying to proclaim a spiritual gospel. Uh, He's trying to proclaim a very practical gospel for here and for now. You see, what often happens for powerful and privileged people, like many white, straight people in the United States, we have, to go- we have to spiritualize the gospel. Why do we have to spiritualize it? Well, many of us are already free. We're not oppressed. We live in a society where we're favored. And so to try and make meaning of Jesus' gospel, we spiritualize it. Well, well then my soul has to be freed. My soul is oppressed. My, my soul needs salvation. But that's not what Jesus was meaning, nor was it who he was talking to with oppressed Jews in an empire under the boot of Rome. And so question, is American Christianity marked by nurturing freedom from bondage? Like is American Christianity consumed with policing reform and incarceration reform and subverting the myth that shame and isolation make for human flourishing? Or, like Rome, is American Christianity increasing human bondage today? Uh, Here's another question that rises from Jesus' gospel in Luke 4. Is American Christianity passionate about healing for the sick? Like, is American Christianity fervent about health care and access, unfettered access to doctors and psychologists and physical therapists for everyone, especially the least of these? (coughs) Or, like Rome, is American Christianity limiting access to these consequential benefits? And here's another question that rises from Jesus' gospel in Luke 4. Is American Christianity passionate about releasing the oppressed? Like, is American Christianity zealous for seeking out the most deeply marginalized people to support them, to lift them up, and to ensure their place at God's table for everyone? Or, like Rome, is American Christianity increasing oppression for those who are different and most in need? Like, is American Christianity fanatical about ensuring every person knows that they're favored by the divine? Or, like Rome, is American Christianity most interested in delineating favor based on race and sexual orientation and nationality and tax bracket? And last question that rises from Jesus' gospel in Luke 4. Is American Christianity marked by nurturing a gospel that results in people being amazed at its graciousness? Or does American Christianity come across to non-Christian people as bigoted, proud, tribal, and violent? Raise your hand if within the last week you heard a non-Christian say, American Christianity is so gracious. No hands. For those watching online, no hands. Yeah, yeah, ever in your life. It's been a while, for sure, for sure. Which makes me want to ask, how did we get here? When Mark's Jesus is supposed to be the subversive Caesar who through self-giving is hung on a cross to declare, let the mythology of redemptive violence end with me. How did we get here when Luke's Jesus proclaims a here and now gospel that amazes the crowds by its goodness and graciousness? How did we get to this American Christianity that we've come to have be known in the world as American Christianity? And I know I'm painting with a broad brush here, but but stick with me. To try and answer these important questions about how American Christianity got to this place, I want to give a brief historical overview of three deeply tragic American gospels. The gospel of imperialism, the gospel of literalism, and the gospel of evangelical fundamentalism. Ready? Okay, to be clear, I'm only going to scratch the surface, but I'm hopeful that these overviews can at least help us to better understand the vast difference between Jesus' ancient good and gracious gospel and what has become known as the American Christian gospel. The gospel of imperialism. Under Constantine in the 4th century, the church suddenly, like almost in the blink of an eye, under Constantine in the 4th century, the church was suddenly given extraordinary power to engage in legislation, clergy was able to begin burning books and taking the property of heretics. And it was this foundation for power, which we also see throughout the biblical account, that resulted in the church transitioning from a marginalized and rogue sect of society to having suddenly, in the blink of an eye, judicial power, land wealth, and incredible enterprise by building churches throughout the world. So, standing on top of the shoulders of Constantine's generation, standing on this foundation of power came the Crusades spanning the 11th to 17th century during which the church engaged in holy wars that promised forgiveness for sins through conversion. An unwillingness to convert resulted in the loss of work and land and at times life. It's not sounding very gracious, is it, right now? Continuing in this tradition of power, during the Great Awakenings in the United States, spanning the 18th to 19th centuries, witches were burned at the stake, and sinners were confronted with eternal torment in hell, unless they began believing what the ministers and preachers told them they must believe. And today, right here and now, the gospel of Jesus is used to support inequality, to deny immigrants, and to get people to believe just the right thing or else always or else. So that's a brief history on the gospel of imperialism. Here's a gospel of literalism historical overview. Biblical interpretation has had many evolutions over the centuries, and it was consistent. It was consistent biblical interpretation all the way up until about the 16th century and forward. This is super important for American Christianity to understand. The way that many of us are taught to think and read the Bible in the States today often is is as though the way we read the Bible goes all the way back to Jesus himself. But it doesn't. After over more than 1,000 years of Christian life in this world, there was a monumental shift in human consciousness. And the shift brought about change in how the Bible was understood and read. Prior to the 16th century, the ancient and medieval periods consistently interpreted the Bible on a few different levels. That is to say, you could read the Bible and think about it in a few different ways. The Bible could be read literally. Also, the Bible could be read allegorically. It's been said by some scholars, if the text is absurd, literally absurd, then read it allegorically. That was a very 16th century kind of thought. And if you didn't read it allegorically, you could read it morally or ethically. Like, what might this mean for our lives today, here and now? However, around the 16th century, the Reformers elevated literalism as the interpretational lens because they felt it necessary to read the Bible as literal history now why? Why for all of these years, over a, thou- over a millennia, we were able to read it in all of these different ways? What was it about the 16th century when all of a sudden the church started to think the Bible needed to be read differently or insist on one reading, which was a literal reading? Well, a couple key reasons explain this shift. First, during the 1440s to mid-1500s, the printing press and Luther's translation of the Bible came into being. What do I mean by that? Well, up until Luther's translation of the Bible, any town you lived in in the world, especially Western, Eastern, Europe, uh, there would be maybe one Bible, and it would be in the the central church, in the center of town, and it would be chained to the pulpit. So we can't imagine Christians all over the world having Bible studies with a Bible on their lap, and they could pick the translation, and they could invite their friends, and they could have... That didn't happen. It was just a Bible in the center of town, and it was usually in Latin. Only schooled people could read Latin. So, Luther's printing, this printing press and Luther's translation started to make the Bible accessible to a whole bunch of people. And second was the scientific revolution. Modern science occurred around the time of Nicholas Copernicus' finding that the earth was not the center of the universe. So following these advancements, the social mores of the Enlightenment in the 17th and 18th centuries further constrained biblical interpretation in Western Europe and the United States, which resulted in the notion of biblical inerrancy and infallibility. How many of you have heard those words, inerrancy and infallibility? Many of us have been taught that those words go all the way back to Jesus. The notion of those words did not exist until the 19th and 20th centuries. Those are modern-day scientific terms and ways of understanding the world. This transition into reductionism, during which the Bible became for some inerrant, affected not just biblical interpretation at large, but also notions and meanings of biblical and theological concepts. This is especially true of the gospel, which became a recipe for personal salvation in later Protestant expressions, evangelical fundamentalism in particular. So that's a brief history on the gospel of literalism and stick with me one more the gospel of evangelical fundamentalism all right the first great awakening 1730s to 1740s came at the end of the puritan society that is english protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries Led by Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield, the separation of church and state allowed newer denominations to evangelize. Now listen to this. This created an economical marketplace that incentivized church growth. That's huge, especially when we think of capitalism and the Western way of seeing the world. The Second Great Awakening, late 18th century to the middle of the 19th century, was marked by lay preachers working on the front lines who prioritize charisma and conversion. The Second Great Awakening was inaugurated. Uh, inauguration was, has been called by scholars a period of evangelical hegemony. That means leadership or dominance, especially by one country or social group over others, also called the Evangelical Empire which rose in the 19th century. Toward the end of the 19th century, conservative ministers associated with evangelist Dwight Moody began to form Bible societies and schools to hold strong against modernist thinking. And running wild with the notion of inerrancy, John Darby, maybe you haven't heard of him, He had apocalyptic notions, which he read out of the book of Revelation, and he said things like this, civilization was in decline and heading toward Armageddon, after which Christ would return, restore his kingdom in Jerusalem. Anyone ever hear that or read Left Behind? Okay. This became a core facet to American Christian faith. Following World War II, fundamentalist modernist battles occurred, and many scholars actually thought that the United States was going to move post-Christian, like what was happening in the Western, uh, Western Europe. However, following World War II, which reminded Americans that there is evil in the world, Americans began pouring into churches around the same time that most notably Billy Graham began preaching. Graham began distancing himself from fundamentalism, calling himself an evangelical. That word had actually gone out of use in his time. He and others defined evangelicals as being born again. Being born again became shorthand for the meaning and essence of the gospel. I'm almost done. Following the 1960s and 1970s that witnessed much cultural upheaval and change, such as the Civil Rights Movement, the protest against the Vietnam War, and the Roe versus Wade decision. Isn't this interesting, this overview? Jerry Falwell and a host of pastors and televangelists took to national politics, forming the Moral Majority, the Christian Voice, and the Religious Roundtable. From that point forward, not very long ago, 30, 40, 50 years ago, from that point forward, the evangelical gospel has been about being born again, being anti-queer, being pro-life, and having a sincere focus on the family. Pun intended, James Dobson. (laughs) So there in a nutshell, you you have it. You have the whole thing. As I understand it, American Christianity has messed up. We've lost the plot. We've forgotten who it is that we are. And it is in desperate need of returning to Jesus' subversively good and gracious gospel. Perhaps we could call it the 17th of July fast. Maybe that's what we should do. An annual pilgrimage back to the very heart of God, during which we remember that Jesus' gospel was, from the very beginning, good and gracious not for the powerful and privileged, not for the white and straight, but for the most vulnerable amongst every society throughout time, truly like a light on a hill, truly like a temple comprised of diverse humans within which the divine dwells in order to subvert empires through our embodiment of and work toward freedom from bondage, healing for the sick, release for the oppressed, and the proclamation of God's favor on everyone and everything. And so on this day, let us grieve what our faith has become in our country. Let us grieve and let us repent. Remember, repentance means to return home. Let us return home to this good, gracious gospel of Jesus and embody it and proclaim it with our lives. May it be so, and let us pray. Oh God, the roads to your very heart, home, mourn. Appointed feasts lay waste, gateways are desolate, Christian faith in America causes many people to groan and grieve. From the depths of this pit, please raise us up raise up this beautiful faith that is to partner with your work of pulling the whole world forward into more and more love. And help us not to cease in our homes, in our schools, in our cities, in our country, until every person knows that they are cherished, that they are loved, and that they belong in you.